0: Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Thank you for being a part of our church family worship service. Uh, I hope that you all had a great Thanksgiving. We have many reasons to be thankful, do we not? Uh, I know they get obscured by all of the other kinds of things that happen in life, the distractions and uh, the annoyances and uh, sometimes... uh, Difficult things, but at the end of the day, uh, we belong to the Lord and He is ours. And this life that we live is just a blink. And for those of us who are in Christ, we have the, all of eternity to live in rapture with Him, with joy, uh, in love, in restoration. And so uh, that's our hope, and we have the greatest hope of all religious faiths, don't we? So, we're still on our series about recalibrating our life and faith in Christ, and I'm really hoping that, you know, as we take each one of these sequentially, that you take the time after every Sunday service to revisit some of what was talked about Sunday morning so that all of us here Can challenge ourselves to do what's necessary for our lives to be recalibrated. That it's not an empty exercise on my part, it's not an empty effort on your part by being here Sunday morning, but that you take seriously what's necessary for us to live a vibrant, effective, joy-filled life in Christ. So there were three essential practices, repentance, guarding our heart, and constancy. And I've been spending a good bit of time on constancy because that seems to be one of the things that's uh, most difficult for Christians to do over the course of their life. What is most challenging for the church over its history was to remain constant in terms of its faithfulness and its efficacy. So there are Uh, are a number of words. I gave you a a bunch of words that are kind of synonyms for constancy, but there are some words here I want to focus on when I do my message. These words in particular as synonyms for the overarching idea of constancy, these are the words that I think should stand out. What it means to be steadfast, what it means to persevere, what it means to be resolute, and what it means to be devoted So um, when it comes to constancy then, this is just by quick review, there are five essential disciplines about how we remain constant in our faith with Christ, constancy in our purpose, and that's where we've been for the last few weeks, the fruit of the Spirit and exercising the fruit of the Spirit, knowing what the gifts of the Holy Spirit are in your life. What are your gifts? that the Holy Spirit has given to you. Do you know what they are? Do you exercise them? Are they a regular part of your life? The biblical virtues. So character-oriented kinds of things about how we shape our lives and how that shape impacts the lives around us. And then the spiritual disciplines. So... When it comes then to constancy in our purpose, it seems to me there are six general principles about purpose and calling. Constancy in giving glory to God. So this past week, when you woke up in the morning, before you went to bed, in the course of those 18 hours, how many times did we give glory to God? How many times did we give glory to God? Constancy in terms of our belonging, the world pulls and tugs at us in every conceivable way. But do you know who you belong to? And are you loyal to whom you belong to? Constancy in terms of the body of Christ, do you know what part of the member of the body of Christ you are? Do you celebrate that? Does it give you purpose and meaning? Does it bring satisfaction to your life that when you exercise that part of your body, within the body? So today, for example, when we meet afterwards to decorate, there are gonna be certain people who are gonna do certain things because they feel competent to do those things, and other people who will not feel be competent to do those things, but they will do something else because they feel like that's their thing. And when they do it, it brings satisfaction to us, to you, and it brings, it brings um, completion to us. And then constancy in terms of our workmanship, do we know how God has made us, and in making us, what the purpose of that making us means? So do we understand our application in this life? Do we understand the works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do? And that we were created to do the thing that he prepared in advance for us to do. Have any of us wrestled with any of these over the last few weeks? Have any of us been fascinated how this might apply to us I hope so. Today we're going to be talking about constancy in fighting our spiritual war, being faithful in being successful. So let me just say this. Let me get your attention. Let me be very clear. We are at war. There is no detente, you know what detente means. So Jimmy Carter made detente kind of a famous word. So during the Cold War with the Soviet Union, nowadays known otherwise as Russia, um, we were trying to come up with some kind of treaty with them and so the word that they used for that treaty was detente. And detente means this, You do your thing and we won't bother you. We'll do our thing and you won't bother us as long as what we do doesn't seem to bother the other person. You do your thing, we'll do our thing. I am telling you, there is no detente in this war. You may want it to be that way. It may actually look like it's that way. It is not that way. So since the beginning of time, we have been at war. Everyone, everywhere, and in every way, we have been at war. It's hidden from us in many respects. It's obfuscated so that we're confused about what really is happening. We can't see it for what it is. But it is war. This war is expedited without mercy, without compassion, or fairness. All of that is at play. You may not see it right now, but I promise you that if anyone in this room ends up on the losing side of that war, there will be no mercy. There will be no compassion. There will be no fairness. It will not happen. The aim of this war is complete, total, and dominant subjugation. That is the aim of the enemy. He wishes nothing more than to have you completely Dominated and subjugated, so that you were absolutely and completely at his power, so that he can do whatever he wants to do. His highest goal is our eternal and absolute and excruciatingly painful corruption. His goal is to take people who are made in the image of God and to make those people like himself. Without the power. Utterly corrupt. Completely contorted. And knowing what you knew as a human being and knowing what you saw before you were judged We are then completely cut off from any of that, but we remember. And we live with that for the rest of eternity. And we are contorted and twisted and remade into the, Im- into the image of our eternal enemy. That is his, And he will take great pleasure in that. Our adversary is Satan, the devil, Lucifer, the prince of darkness, plus all of his demons. Also known sometimes as an angel of light, the deceiver, and the accuser. If you don't get anything that I've said in this entire series... If everything else fades away in some respects, and you don't hear and internalize anything else, then understand that we are at war. And the prize of that war for the enemy is your soul. <coughs> And he revels in the thought that he has someone that the Lord has loved. That the Lord had plans for. That the Lord created with this incredible purpose. (coughs) And now all of that is gone and it has been completely twisted and corrupted. Understand that that is the the larger reality, and that it is only by the grace of God, the power of Jesus Christ, that we have not been visited with that right now. That the power of Jesus Christ holds all of that at bay while he gives us time and while he works to bring us to himself. You are at war. You may not want to be. It may, it may be really unappealing. You may want to live in denial. None of that makes any of what I said untrue, nor does it make any of it go away So who are we at war with We are at war with Satan I, I that's I'm just telling you what the scriptures tell us I'm telling you I'm just I'm just summing up in one sense what the work of what the work of Jesus was against Satan in the Old and New Testament, here are here are the here is the biblical understanding of who Satan is. The word Satan in the Old Testament, Satan, means adversary. That's the noun. And it means to accuse or resist. So um, so, there, so we understand Satan as a word that can be either like a pronoun, like the name Satan, or it simply means, or it can be like an, a verb or an adverb, a description of something. So, for example, the word Satan is used non-theologically as an adjective in 1 Samuel 29, 4, where the Philistines have King David, he's not a king at that point, but he, they have David, and they release David over to the Israelites, and they say, we will release him lest he become a Satan to us, an adversary. That's what the word literally means, adversary. So the word in the Old Testament, Satan or Satan, was used in a non-theological sort of way. It was just like a verb or an adverb in that regard. In the four Old Testament passages, a Satan or adversary can be an angelic being. So, for example, in uh, the account of Balaam and the donkey, when Balaam is going to curse someone, he's encountered with this angelic being to prevent him from doing that. And the angelic being says, I am here as a Satan. I am here as an adversary to be against what you want to do. So the word is used in that way as well in the Old Testament. In the remaining three passages of the Old Testament, Satan is an adversary against God's people, either by seducing them to do evil Or by accusing them before God for their sins. Don't you think this is incredibly ironic that this person could spend the whole of your life seducing you to be disobedient to God, and then when you stand before God to give an account of your life, he's there accusing you of violating, not doing what God wanted you to do. It's kind of an irony there, don't you think? Like, he's like, what? I mean, you almost want to say, but I did what you said I should do to Satan. He said, yeah, look what happens to you. It's the ultimate betrayal. In the New Testament, the name Satan is transliterated into the Greek 34 times. So the New Testament talks about Satan the pronoun, the person, much more than the Old Testament does. It's used exclusively as a pronoun. He is also called the diablos or devil thirty-six times. So, uh, if you if you uh, are into Latin or Spanish or whatever, then you know you know the word diablo, right? Uh, it's a fairly common word, actually. So means devil, or actually means the accuser. So diablos denotes to accuse. So, um, so then here are some other names for Satan, just in case, just to put a finer point on the whole thing in terms of how important this person is in the New Testament, and why it. It speaks to this war that we are involved in. Other names for Satan are Tempter, Beelzebub, the Enemy, Belial, God of this World, Power of Darkness, Prince of the Power of the Air, Adversary, Deceiver, Dragon, Ancient Serpent, father of lies and murderer, the accuser, Apollyon, and the evil one. In many respects, as an adversary, he dominates in the New Testament and figures very prominently in Johannine literature, especially in the book of Revelation, the end times. He is um, our chief protagonist. It is he that we fight against. And it is he that is trying to to destroy us. So note that in the New Testament, that the New Testament enlarges the understanding of Satan as a heavily armed prince dwelling with his demonic subjects in a fortified palace. We read that in Matthew 12, 25 through 29, which is kind of a paraphrase. In addition, Satan, along with his demons, exercises so much power over the nations that he is termed ruler of this world. And not just in one, one place, but many places. He is referred to as the ruler of this world. Obviously, God, Jesus Christ is the ultimate ruler over which he rules everything. But in this world specifically for a time, for a period, Satan is allowed to rule and to reign in many respects. Satan rules in the hearts of all who are not born of God. They are called the children of the devil. They may not feel that way. That might even be offensive to them when you, when, if you were to say that to them. But that is the craftiness of his ability to confuse and to disillusion them, or to, uh, to confuse and to uh, uh, convince them that he doesn't exist, that he's not a real thing, by the way, I mean you you really it, even in even in many many seminaries and churches, very few pastors, theologians are willing to talk about Satan. They see him as just only a mythic figure, an invention of humanity, um, a way of trying to scare people into right behavior so when you talk to someone who may not be a believer, and let's say the subject of Satan comes up, for them it, it's, it, it could be just ridiculous to have that conversation. That's how successful he has been in convincing other people he is not a problem. If you were going to war with another country and you wanted to completely deceive them and to disarm them, you would want to say to them, you're really not a problem. Something else may be a problem, but you're not the person that they need to be afraid of. You as an adversary don't really exist. But Satan rules over the hearts of people. In other words, when a person doesn't come to faith in Christ, it's because they rebel against Christ. And rebellion is the very essence of what Satan did in the beginning. Prior to regeneration, all were energized and motivated by the spirit of Satan. Before you come to faith in Christ, whether you believe it or not, whether you think it or not, You are a tool. You are being manipulated. You're being deceived. You may think, well, no, I I have it completely together. I know exactly what I'm thinking. That he doesn't exist. That I don't need Jesus. And if you think that, then he's been incredibly successful in terms of how he's confused you. And deceived you. So for the time being, God has granted Satan, not Stan, Satan. <laughs> a, little, a little spelling error there. Sorry, Stan. <laughs> for the time being, God has created Satan a limited power of, over death. And Satan uses the fear of death to keep people in bondage to him. So just a few things I ran into that I, I couldn't condense any further, but I thought were so good that I just needed to include these. So I have this, a couple of screenshots of some things I want to share with you. Satan's objective. In the meantime, Satan's goal is to keep or get people back under his rule. Keep, people who do have not come to Christ, or get, people who do follow Christ, back under his rule. Satan employs all sorts of strategies to keep people out of Jesus' kingdom. He snatches the word of God's kingdom from the hearts of many before they grasp its excellence and submit to it. He snatches the word from their heart. There are many people I know Who have had just enough of an experience with the church, with other Christians, that before any of that take took root and produced fruit, it was snatched from them. And they in effect have been inoculated against the gospel. They think they know enough, but they did not get what they know to grow into change. He snatches the word of God's kingdom from the hearts of many before they grasp its excellence and submit to it. He blinds the minds of unbelievers to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. I just got to tell you, for all the time that I spend having conversation and being online with people in different groups that I belong to and the blindedness there is so pervasive and so poignant, blind. And there's an arrogance to that blindness. They know better. I'm the one that's deluded. I'm the one that's uninformed. I'm the one that's mistaken. I'm the one that's blind. Satan's attacks against God's people are becoming increasingly intense as he realizes how quickly his time is running out. Because when his time is running out, not only does he lose those of us who are left, but he loses everything in the final judgment with Christ. And he is determined to take as many with him as he possibly can. There isn't a person in this room that wouldn't delight him for you to be a part of that train that descends into the final abyss of the lake of fire. Just before the establishment of Jesus' kingdom, Satan will stage his most concerted and universal attack upon God's people through the Antichrist who will command the worship of humanity by performing miracles and slaying all those who refuse him. God's people will survive this time only because the Antichrist's reign will be cut short by the second coming of Christ. So this would be like maybe a pre-trib approach, but one final comment. Before the appearance of the Antichrist, Satan works against God's people in a variety of ways. He causes persecution. Now, I'll, and I'll say this by extension: it's it's my belief, for example, that the Jewish people still continue to be God's people that I think Paul's pretty clear in the first chapter of Romans when he says that the gospel is first for the Jew, secondly for the Gentile. And it's pretty clear, and I think all of us here, if you've been watching any of the news, you have to be stunned. You have to be astounded at the vitriol that is aimed towards Jewish people throughout the world. And that the horrors that have been justified against them. These are God's people. There is a blessing that goes even even to unbelieving Jews. There is a blessing that comes to them simply because they are descendants of Abraham. I think the scriptures are clear on this. That's just a small glimpse of the kind of persecution that will come the way to the church in the end times. And we're even beginning to see some of that today. People in our own country, so in higher education, in most places in higher education, you simply cannot say that you are a church member, or that you're in, that you govern, that you're on a church board, or you're an elder, or something like. You, you cannot say it because you may not get tenure. You might not even get hired if that were a part of your CV, your curricula vita, or your your resume. That's just one tiny example. There are many believers whom, if they talk about how, how, how committed they are in their faith, they cannot adopt children. Because there are certain people in the social sciences that believe that the religious faith and raising kids up in the, in the Christian faith is child abuse. I kid you not. I am telling you the truth. So we are beginning to see some of that already. And it's all by design. It's part of the building persecution. I'm not being paranoid or anything like that. We all can read the scriptures. We all know this is supposed to happen. And we all still live in Christ. We live in hope. We live with his joy. We, we choose to persevere because that's what it means to be Constant. He places counterfeit Christians in the churches alongside the genuine people of God. I've told you many times, most Christian theologians are not believers. They teach in seminaries and even in biblical, uh, like uh, Christian colleges, they are not, but by their own admission, they are not believers. And they're given access to young minds to woo them away from the faith. They think they have the true faith, but they are counterfeit. They are false. And these counterfeits provide occasions for God's people to stumble. Look, I'm old enough to I'm old enough to tell you that the mainline church experienced this. The mainline church, for decades, Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, um, uh, Presbyterian, Baptist, to some extent. Um, that when those churches became affluent and prosperous, that over time, counterfeit believers began to make their way into the authority structure of the church. They became elders. They became presidents of uh, denominations. And many of those churches are, many of those denominations are clearly waning and disappearing into an oblivion of relevancy because they've become like the Kiwanis or the Lions or some social community group. They're all about maybe social justice as opposed to about Jesus Christ. Some of you are from those mainline churches, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. I spent a lot of time in the mainline churches. I know. It's counterfeit. It's false. And this is all part of how the enemy works. It's all a result of this ongoing war that we are a part of, whether we realize it, whether we want to realize it or not. And every one of you not only could be a victim in war, but more importantly, you and I have to be soldiers in this war. We can't just lay down and let the enemy have his way. There are people to be saved, there are people to be rescued. No one likes a soldier that is a coward, no one likes a soldier that is poorly trained. No one likes a soldier that refuses to do the job they're supposed to do when that job needs to get done. Satan also roams as an angel of light. Satan roams among God's people seeking to destroy those who have become vulnerable through not watching and praying for protection from temptation. Do you pray regularly to be protected from temptation? Do you pray regularly to be protected from temptation? Because that's our Achilles heel and it's not just temptation to do evil things. It's oftentimes temptation to do nothing. It's temptation to be agnostic, to not have any particular passion about one thing or the other. It's the temptation to live a convenient life. What people, what soldiers do you know ever do, what people who are at war what soldiers who actually fight do you ever know do that in a convenient fashion? Without risk. Without sacrifice. Now, if I seem like I'm, I'm a little hard this morning, it's because it became clear to me just how disconnected most of us are from this reality that we are at war. And that we've been given this false sense of security, of safety, when it's really not there. I've often said in the past, for example, we are only one decision away from incarceration. Any one of you could leave this room today, make a poor choice, and end up in jail. Just one. Just one. That's all you have to do. Just one decision, you can end up in jail. For years. Which is why all of us have to live our lives in Christ very circumspectly, very with wisdom, with care, with with this understanding what our purpose is. Because when we don't live with a purpose, we get really distracted very easily. And a lot of the temptation for Christians in countries like ours is only the temptation of distraction. Christians never, never in the history of humankind, Christians have never handled um, they've never handled prosperity well. More stuff means more distractions. And I have too much stuff. I'm not just saying it's true. It distracts me. I'm not saying we shouldn't have stuff. I'm just saying if we're going to have stuff, then we have to work harder not to be distracted about what our purpose is. More stuff means working harder not to be distracted. More stuff means... Making sure that it's not our stuff, but it's God's stuff, and that we use it as, as stewards of God's stuff. So, those who have become vulnerable through not watching and praying for protection from temptation. There is this Greek word, and I've spoken about this many times, called pirasmus in the New Testament. Anytime you almost, any time, not, not exclusively, but almost anytime you see the word trial, testing, or temptation, it's almost always the Greek word parasmus. So the exegetes in the New Testament uh, use the different English words based on the context. But it's the Greek word parasmus. So, in the English, we have a poverty of words. We just don't have a word that encompasses the full meaning of the Greek word parasmus. So, we have to divide it up based on the context of the text itself and use the word trial, testing, or temptation. But one thing's very clear about the Greek word parasmus that when it comes to temptation, and whatever kind of temptation it is, even the most seemingly innocuous, harmless temptation, there is an intent behind that temptation. There is an advantage that the enemy sees in this war that he is fighting, that whatever temptation you and I have, there is some advantage that he sees with that temptation to move us away from our purpose and the person that we belong to in life. Whatever that temptation is, there are no haphazard temptations. (laughs) He just doesn't throw them out there to see what sticks. So what Satan uses as a temptation for our destruction, understand this. On the other hand, God allows as a means for our edification. This is a very important principle. Have any of you ever wondered, how does does God want me to grow? What does he want me? How should I improve my life? What does he want me to do? Then I would say to you, look at your temptations. Because whatever those temptations are that Satan means for your destruction, he intends to destroy you with that God allows so that you can be edified, so you can learn, so you can see the area of your life you need to grow in. And by the way, let me, just say, let me say this. When you say that you, you struggle with certain temptations and that those are weaknesses in your life, that is absolutely not true. True. The greatest temptations, the most difficult temptations to overcome are the ones that have to do with your strengths. It has to do with your strengths. So God wants us to grow and to develop our strengths. But the enemy's desire is to create a temptation related to our strengths. So if you have an anger problem, and many of us do, it usually means you are a person who is passionate about certain things and you have a certain idea about how things ought to be. And because things are not that way and you feel strongly, you get angry. And you lose your anger. And you give in to the temptation. And you miss but God is trying to teach you. If you are tempted with lust, then you are a person that probably appreciates beauty. You want intimacy, and you see the importance of it. And the only way that you can get that artificially is to recreate it in your mind. So really, you have this capacity for... Beautiful, intense relationships, but it's contorted, it's twisted, it's corrupted. And so the Lord wants you to develop that strength in your life. The list is endless. What are your temptations? We should all go home today. Before the sealer game or before we go to bed, list out what our primary temptations are. Then ask ourselves this question, in what way is that temptation related to a strength of mine? And how does God want me to grow in this way? And how can I pray that God would show me? Because if you do that, then the game is up in many respects. So if you want to know where God wants you to grow, look at those areas of your life where you experience the most temptation. And if you're still blind to that, ask your spouse. And tell him it's perfectly safe to do so. There will be no repudiation, there'll be no recriminations, there'll be no punishment. If you really want to know, and they tell you, ask your good friends. Tell them to be honest. What do you see? Now, that would be a way that the body really could work. Well, huh <laughs> <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. I mean, you know, that's trust. The truth of the matter is, we all have our secrets. We all do. I mean, look, if I were to take, you've heard me allude to this before, if we were to take everything that you've thought in the last week that you haven't articulated but thought, and we were able to download it on a CD or DVD and play it here in church Sunday morning, how many of us would come back to church the next Sunday? How many of us would probably have to leave town? Right? I mean, it's, it's true. But sometimes we need that person in our life that we can share those things with. And I've have, I have some of those people in my life. And it's healing and it's freeing. And it's how the body works. I'm kind of on a rabbit trail here, but I'm just saying to you. There's, Satan wants us to keep our secrets to ourselves. And if we do, they become cancerous to our soul. It's true. If you don't have someone that you can share with honestly and openly, then it eats away at you. Most people in our lives, like 99.9% of only know about 60 or 70% of who we really are. And the other 30 to 40%, we organize our life around other people not knowing what that that part is. We don't organize it around what people do know. We organize a lot of that around what people do not know. So they will not know. So they cannot find out what we really think. So I have about three minutes here, and I want to finish this. So there are a couple of things I just want to go through having understood that we are at war and that the person beside you, the person behind you, the person that you the people that you live with, the people that you say that you love, every one of those people are targets of the enemy. Every one of them are targets of the enemy. And it may be that the Lord's plan is you are the person to keep the people around you from being victimized by the enemy. It's your job. So there's this interesting text in Psalm 78, 9, about the Ephraimites. And um, if you want to turn to that, um, just real quick, Psalm... Seventy-eight, nine. The Ephraimites are armed with a bow, yet they turn back in the day of battle. The Ephraimites are armed with a bow, yet they turn back in the day of battle. Um, so, in the, in the New American Standard Bible, it says the sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back on the day of battle. The NIV says the men of Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. In the ESV, which I just read, the Ephraimites armed with the bow turned back on the day of battle. So he's saying, so the psalmist is talking about some war that we don't know what that war was, that they had this advantage in this training and this technology of bows, which could have helped in the effort of fighting the battle. And yet they chose not to implement what it was that they had the training that they were given. And as a result of that, There was some kind of problem by them not doing what they were supposed to do, and there were more victims in that battle than what there should have been. Are we Ephraimites armed, trained, and if given the opportunity, will we fight, will we exercise what we have, or will we turn back? Have we turned back? Are we turning back in this battle, this war that we are involved in now? You decide. Be honest. Because everyone here has been armed. I am not a lot of things. But one of the things that I try very hard to do is to teach the full the full text and context of the Scriptures. And I've been here for 18 years. If anyone is confused about what it is that God calls us to and how it is we're supposed to do what we're supposed to do and that we're supposed to do it, if anyone's confused there, I'm not sure that's my fault. And what I might be sure of is that you may want to really examine why you're not aware of that. I hope that doesn't sound arrogant in any way. I'm not world's best pastor. I'm not world's best speaker. I'm not a lot of things, admittedly. but I know that I preach my heart out a lot of times on Sunday morning so that we understand what the real issues are, what's really at stake. We have 49 people here this morning. We have some people listening online, probably. There should be more. There can be more. not because we're trying to have numbers for the sake of numbers, but because those are rescued lives. Those are people who are joining us in this war that we're fighting together. Remember, Jesus Christ delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, and in the same way that Satan would like to take as many people with him into that train of his, into the abyss, wouldn't you like to take as many people with you into, in, as a part of your train with Jesus Christ up into eternal glory in heaven to rescue people from this war that they don't even know they're in? I hope that you do. There's so much ahead for us. There's so much that we can do. And and remember, remember. That in a war and in a battle. There is no one person who's responsible for winning the whole of that battle, not even the general. Every person who is a soldier in whatever battle and whatever war they find themselves, every person is asked simply to do this. Be faithful. Just do the job you were told you need to do. Be faithful. And if everybody does their job faithfully, you're probably gonna win most of the battles and you probably will win the war. Does this make sense to everybody?